Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in, come in and save the cool. Yes, Yes, it's warm again in Chicago. Warm, muggy, rainy, thundery. Ah, well, it is summer. And you can't get through to Halloween and Christmas without going through the horrors of summer, the drear of the monsoon, the sweat, the ick of heat, and... Yes, my name is Lawrence Santoro, and you have slogged correctly and rung the right bell. This is the nook you've reached Tales to Terrify, and you have arrived on the doorstep of our second Stoker evening of our second Stoker year. Welcome to show number 73. Doff your gear, shake it out, and hook it by the door. Settle in, beverage in hand, snacks in bowl, side by side by your horror companion of choice— Okay. If last week was your first-ever visit to the Nook, and last week's readings were your first experience of Tales to Terrify, well, welcome back. I'm glad this now 
annual reading of all the Bram Stoker Award-nominated short fiction pieces, has drawn you to our little place here in the District of Wonders. And I hope you'll return every week. Oh, yes, yes, we do this weekly. We meet in the dark, sit within the nook, and tell sad stories of the deaths of... Well, it's not always of death. Sometimes the tales that are told are neither sad nor do they deal with death. Times are when the tale examines fates worse than death. Well, you know. Eternal darkness worms epitaphs anyway. You get the idea. Times are when we'll sit heads together and hear work by names you'll all know. Uh, Jovar Lansdale, Gene Wolfe, Stephen King, Gary McMahon, Christopher Fowler. You get the idea. But some weeks, some weeks, you'll hear surprising and wondrous work by people you've probably never heard of but should. Time will have been and will be that will gather to read stories by classic tellers of tales. H.P. Lovecraft, William Hope Hodgson, Algernon Blackwood, M.R. James, and, and many, many others. That's Tales to Terrify. That's the District of Wonders. Last week and this, we huddle together and read stories that the members of the Horror Writers Association, the HWA, have determined deserve notice for superior achievement in short fiction, okay? Okay. Our story to date. This year's short fiction Stoker nominees are Joe McKinney for Bury My Heart at Marvin Gardens from Best of Dark Moon Digest, Dark Moon Books. Bruce Boston for Surrounded by the Mutant Rainforest from Daily Science Fiction. John Palisano for Available Light from the Lovecraft e-zine of March 2012. Lucy A. Snyder for Magdala Amygdala from Dark Faith Invocations, Apex Book Company. And from Weston Oaks for Righteous from Psychos. That's from Black Dog and Leventhal Publications. Last week, we heard Joe McKinney's, Bruce Boston's, and John Palisano's Stoker-nominated stories. As I say, if you're new to Tales to Terrify, you can go to our website. At, that's http colon slash slash com slash. You can click yourself into the archive and hear that show, as well as all the shows we've ever done. And then come back for part two of this year's Stoker Stories, during which we will be entertained by Lucy Snyder and Weston Oaks. Okay, you've had enough of me now, so let's advance. Lucy A. Snyder is already a Bram Stoker Award-winning writer. She's the author of the novels Spellbent, Shotgun Sorceress, Switchblade Goddess, and the collections Sparks and Shadows, Chimeric Machines, and Installing Linux on a Dead Badger. Oh, I love that title. Her writing has appeared in Strange Horizons, Weird Tales, Hellbound Hearts, Doctor Who Short Trips, 
Destination Prague, Chiaroscuro, GUD, and Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. Lucy was born in South Carolina, grew up in San Angelo, Texas, and currently lives in Worthington, Ohio, with her husband and occasional co-author Gary A. Brownbeck. She says that if genres were wall-building nations, Lucy's stories would be forging passports, jumping fences, swimming rivers, and dodging bullets. You can learn more about her at www.lucysnyder.com. Here is Lucy A. Snyder's Magdala Amygdala. I was bound, though I have not bound. I was not recognized, but I have recognized that the all is being dissolved, both the earthly and the heavenly. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene So, how are you feeling? Dr. Shapiro's pencil hovers over the CDC risk evaluation form clamped to her clipboard. Pretty good. When I talk, I make sure my tongue stays tucked out of sight. I smile at her in a way that I hope looks friendly and not like I'm baring my teeth. The exam room mirror reflects the back of the good doctor's head. Part of me wishes the silvered glass were angled so I could check my expression. The rest of me is relieved that I can't see myself. Nothing existed before this. The present and recent past keep blurring together in my mind, but I've learned to take a moment before I reply to questions. Speak a little more slowly to give myself the chance to sort things out before I utter something that might sound abnormal. My waking world seems to have been taken apart and put back together, so that everything is just slightly off, the geometries of reality deranged. Most of my memories before the virus are as insubstantial as dreams. The strongest of them feel like borrowed clothing, the sweet snap of peas fresh from my garden, the thud of the bass from the huge speakers, and the crush of hot perfumed bodies against mine at the club, the pleasant twin burns of the sun on my shoulders and the exertion in my legs as I pedal my bike up the mountainside. The life I had in those memories is gone forever. I don't know why this is happening to humanity, to me. I'd like to think there's some greater purpose, some meaning in all this. But God help me, I just can't see it. So is the new job going well? Are you able to sleep? My doctor shines a penlight in my eyes and nostrils and marks off a couple of boxes. Thankfully, she doesn't ask to see my tongue. It's the same set of questions every week. I'd have to be pretty far gone to answer badly and get myself quarantined. The endless doctor visits wear down other type 3s, but I hang on to the belief that someday there might be actual help for me here. I nod. It's fine. I have blackout curtains. Sleep's not a problem. They seem pretty happy with my work. My new supervisor is a friendly guy, but he always has an excuse for why he can't meet with me in person, preferring to call me on his cell phone for our weekly chats. I used to bounce from building to building, repairing computers, spending equal amounts of time swapping gossip and hardware. After I got out of the hospital, I went on the graveyard shift in the company's cold network operations center. These nights, I'm mostly raising processes from the dead, watching endless scrolling green text on cryptic black screens. I'm pretty sure the company discreetly advised my quiet co-workers to carry tasers and mace just in case. Do you feel that you're able to see your old friends and family often enough? Dr. Shapiro asks. 
Sure, I lie. We meet online for games and we talk and vent. It's fun. For the sake of his own health, my boyfriend took a job and apartment in another state. We speak less and less on the phone. What is there to say to him now? We can't even chat about anything as simple as food or wine. I must subsist on bananas, rice, apple juice, and my meager allotment of six bovalum capsules per day. The law says I can't go to crowded places like theaters and concerts. I only glimpse the sun when I'm hurrying from the shelter of my car's darkly tinted windows to monthly 8 a.m. appointments with my court-ordered physician. So I'm striding up the street to Dr. Shapiro's office, my head down, squinting behind sunglasses, when suddenly I hear a man in the park across the street shouting violent nonsense. Or he used to be a man, anyhow. He's wearing construction boots, ragged Carhartt's work overalls, and a dirty gray t-shirt, all freshly spattered with the blood of the woman whose head he is enthusiastically cracking open against the curb. He howls at the sky, and I can see he's missing some teeth. Probably whatever he did for a living didn't pay him enough to see a dentist. But his skin looks flush and smooth, so much healthier than mine and for a moment I envy him. He stops howling and meets my shadowed stare, breaking into a gory gap-toothed smile, the kind of grin you give an old dear friend. I've never laid eyes on this wreck before, and the woman beneath him is beyond anyone's help. They both are. I don't want to be outed. Not here, not like this. So I pretend I don't even see him and stride on. A few seconds later I hear the spat of rifle fire and the thud of a meaty body hitting the pavement and I know that the SWAT team just took out ragged Carhartts. They're never far away, not in this part of town, and once they've taken out one Type 3, they don't need much excuse to kill another, even if you're just trying to see your doctor like a good citizen. Oh, God, a lady says. She and another 40-ish woman are standing in the doorway of an art gallery, staring horrified at the scene behind me. They're both wearing batik dresses and lots of handmade jewelry. That's the third one this month. If this keeps up, we'll have to close. The other woman shakes her head, looking gray-faced. Nobody will want to come here. The whole downtown will die. Not just us. The theaters, the museums, churches, everything. I heard something on NPR about a new kind of gel to keep the virus from spreading. The first woman replies, sounding hopeful. I keep moving, her voice fades away. People still talk about contagion control as if it matters as if masks and sanitizers and prayers can stop the future. The truth is, unless you've been living in some isolated Tibetan monastery, you've already been exposed to polymorphic viral gastroencephalitis. Maybe it gave you a bit of a headache and some nausea, but after a few days' bed rest, you were going out for Thai again. Congratulations, you're type 1, and you probably don't even know it. But maybe the headache turned into the worst you've ever had, and you started vomiting up blood and then your stomach lining. And when you came out of the hospital, you'd lost the ability to digest most foods and to make certain proteins. And in the absence of those proteins, your body has trouble growing and healing. The enzymes your DNA uses to repair itself don't work very well anymore. Sunlight is no longer your friend. Neither are x-rays. Even if you quit smoking and keep yourself covered up like a virgin in the Rubel Khali, your skin cracks and your body sprouts tumors. Your brain begins to degenerate. You start talking to yourself in second person. Sooner or later, you develop lesions on your frontal lobe and hippocampus that cause a variety of behaviors, which will lead to your friendly neighborhood SWAT team putting a 308 bullet through your skull. That means you're a type 2, or maybe a type 3 like me. If you're type 4, we aren't having this conversation, unless you're a ghost. 
You aren't a ghost, are you? I don't think I believe in them. But if you were a Type 4, your whole GI tract got stripped. I hope you were lucky and had a massive brain bleed right when it got really bad, and you never woke up. I'm pretty sure I woke up. Do you find yourself having any unwanted thoughts or violent fantasies? Dr. Shapiro asks. Of course not. I try to sound mildly indignant. There's one upside, if it can be called that. If you lived past all the pain and vomiting, the symptoms of your chronic disease can be alleviated if you consume sufficient daily quantities of one of a couple of raw protein sources. If the best protein source for you is fresh human blood, congratulations, you are a type 2, provided you have a fat bank account or decent health insurance, or are quick with a razor and fast on your feet, you can resume puberty or your athletic career. Watch out for HIV. It's a killer. If, however, the best source for you comes from sweet, custard-like brains, you are a type 3. Your situation is much more problematic and expensive. You better have a wealthy family or truly excellent insurance. Or mob connections. Otherwise, sooner or later you'll end up trying to crack open someone's skull in public. The only question then is if you'll get that one moment of true gustatory bliss right before you die. I have excellent health insurance. There's no bliss for me. What I and every other upstanding, gainfully employed, fully covered Type 3 citizen gets is an allotment of refrigerated capsules containing an unappetizing gray paste. Mostly it's cow brains and antioxidant vitamins, with just the barest hint of pureed cadaver white matter. It's enough to keep your skin and brains from ulcerating. It's enough to keep your nose from rotting off. It's enough to help you think clearly enough to function at your average white-collar job. It is not enough to keep you from constantly wishing you could taste the real thing. I was wondering about something, I say as Dr. Shapiro begins to copy the contents of her survey into the exam room computer. She stops typing and gives me a wary smile. Yes, what is it? My medication. I feel okay, you know, but I think I could feel better. If I could have a little more? I'm choosing my words as carefully as possible. My tongue feels thick, twitchy. I can't talk about the cravings I'm feeling. I can't even mention wanting more energy because nobody in charge wants someone like me feeling energetic. I wonder if there's a sniper watching from behind the mirror on the wall. Has he tightened his grip on his rifle? Are gas canisters waiting to blow in the air conditioner vent above me? My skin itches in dread anticipation. Dr. Shapiro hedges. Well, I know there's been a shortage of raw materials these days. I swallow down my impatience and worry. The capsules are 98% cow brains, for God's sake. Probably they can squeeze a single human brain for thousands of doses. There are a hundred babies stillborn every day in big city hospitals. Some of the mothers have to be altruists. I can't imagine the pharmaceutical companies are running short of anything. Could you check just the same? Could you ask for me? I sound meek, pathetic, the opposite of hostile. That's good. She gives me a pitying look and sighs. The mirror doesn't explode in gunfire. Gas doesn't burst from the vents. I'll see what I can do, my doctor says. I try to believe she'll come through for me. I go home. I take my capsules with some Mott's apple juice. I rinse my mouth out with peroxide and don't look at my tongue. I rub salve on the places my clothes have rubbed raw and I climb naked into my bed. Sometime later, the alarm goes off, and I rise, shower, dress, and drive to work in darkness. 
My shift is dull clockwork until just after gray drizzling dawn when one of the new tech leads comes in to talk to my coworker George about some of the emergency server protocols. I haven't seen this young man before. He's wearing snug jeans and the sleeves of his black polo shirt are tight over biceps tattooed with angels and devils. His blonde hair is cut close over a smooth, high-browed skull. He starts talking about database errors, but he's thinking about a gig he has with his band on Friday night. And it suddenly hits me not just that I know what he's thinking, but that I know because I can smell the sweet chemicals shifting inside his brain. The chemicals tell me his name is Devin. I am filled with want in the marrow of my bones. I am filled with need from eyeballs to souls. I excuse myself and hurry out into the mutagenic morning and punch Betty's number into my cell. Soon after we met, she made me promise not to save her details on my phone, just in case anything went wrong. It's early for her, but she answers on the third ring. Speaking in the casual code we've used since we met online, we agree to meet that evening. It's her turn to host. I sleep fitfully. When my alarm goes off, I call in sick, shower, dress, and check my phone. Betty's texted a cryptic string of letters and numbers for my directions. And so I drive out to a hotel we've never visited before, drinking Aquafina's the whole way. It's a dark old place, once grand, now crumbling away in a forgotten corner of downtown. I wonder if she's running short of money or if the extra anonymity of the place was crucial to her. Still, as I get out of my car and double-check my locks in the pouring rain, I can't help but peer out into the oppressive black spaces in the parking lot, trying to figure out if any of the shadows between the other vehicles could be lurking cops or CDC agents. The darkness doesn't move, so I hurry to the front door, head down, hands jammed in my raincoat pockets, my stomach roiling with worry and anticipation. I avoid making eye contact with any of the damp, tired-looking prostitutes smoking outside the hotel's front doors. None of them pay any attention to me. My phone chimes as Betty texts me the room number. I take the creaking, urine-stinking elevator up four floors. My pace slows as I walk down the stained hallway carpet, and I pause for a moment before I knock on the door of room 512. What if the watchers tapped Betty's phone? What if she's not here at all? My poised hand quivers as my heart seems to pound out a trap, a trap, a trap. I swallow, knock twice, step back. A moment later, Betty answers the door wearing her Audrey Hepburn wig and a black cocktail dress that hangs limply from her skeletal shoulders. It's appalling how much weight she's lost. Her eyes have turned entirely black, the whites permanently stained by repeated hemorrhages. But she smiles at me and I find myself smiling back warmed by the first spark of real human feeling I've had in months. I have to believe that we're still human. I have to. You ready? Her question creaks like the hinge of a forgotten gate. Absolutely. My own voice is the dry fluttering of moth wings. She locks the door behind me. I'm sorry this place is such a pit, but the guy at the Holiday Inn started asking all kinds of questions, and this was the best I could do on short notice. It's okay. The room isn't as seedy as the lobby and exterior led me to expect it to be, and it's got a couch in addition to the queen-sized bed. Betty has already covered the couch and the carpet in front of it with a green plastic tarpaulin. Her stainless steel spritzer bottle leans against a couch arm. Want some wine? She gestures toward an unopened bottle of yellow teal Shiraz on the dresser. Thanks, but no, I couldn't drink it right now, maybe after. She nods. There's a really good Italian restaurant around the corner. Kind of a good fellow's hangout, but everything's homemade. Great garlic bread.
Betty pulls off the wig. Before she got the virus, she could grow her thick chestnut hair clear down to her waist. I've never seen it except in pictures. Her bare scalp gleams pale in the yellow light from the chandelier. The scar circumscribing her skull looks red, inflamed. I wonder if she's been seeing other type threes. I quickly tamp down my pang of jealousy. We never agreed to an exclusive arrangement, and maybe she just had to go to the hospital instead. She told me she's got some kind of massive tumor on her pituitary. She looks so frail. I can't possibly begrudge her what comfort she can get. I should just be grateful that she agrees to see me when I need her. And oh, sweet Lord, do I need her tonight. Betty pulls me down to her for a kiss. Her hands are icy, but her lips are warm. She slips her tongue into my mouth, and I can taste sweet cerebrospinal fluid mingled in her saliva. The tumor must have cracked the bony barriers in her skull. Before I have a chance to try to pull away, my own tongue is swelling. Toothed pores opening and nipping at her slippery flesh. She squeaks in pain and we separate. Sorry, I try to whisper, but my tongue is continuing to engorge and lengthen, curling back on itself and slithering down my own throat. I can feel the tiny maws rasping against my adenoids. It's okay. Her wan smile is smeared with blood. We better get started. She kisses the palm of my hand and begins to take my clothes off. I stare up at the tawdry chandelier, watching a fly buzz among the dusty baubles and bulbs. When I'm naked, she slips off her cocktail dress and leads me to the top-covered couch. Be gentle. She presses a short oyster knife into my hand and sits me down, the plastic crackling beneath me. I nod, barely keeping my lips closed over my shuddering tongue, and spread my legs. With slow exhalation, Betty settles between my thighs, her back to me. She's a tiny woman, her head barely clearing my chin when we're seated so this position works best. Her skin is already covered in goosebumps. The anticipation is killing both of us. I carefully run the tip of the sharp oyster knife through the red scar around her skull. There's relatively little blood as I cut through the tissue. Betty gives a little gasp and grips my knees, her whole body tensed. The bone has only stitched back together in a few places. I use the side-to-side motion she showed me to gently pry the lid of her skull free. She moans when I expose her brain. It's the most beautiful thing I could hope to see. Her dura mater glistens with a half-inch slick of golden jelly. Brain, honey. When I breathe in the smell of her, I feel my blood pressure rise hard and fast. I set the bowl of skin and bone aside and present the knife to her in my outstretched left hand. With a flick of her wrist, she slits the vein in the crook of my arm and presses her mouth against my bleeding flesh. I wrap my cut arm around her head and pull her tight to my breast. I open my mouth and let my tongue unwind like an eel into her brain pan. It wriggles there, purple and gnarled, the tiny maw sucking down her golden jelly. It's delicious, better than caviar, better than ice cream, better than anything I've had in my mouth before. Sweet and salty and tangy and perfect. The jelly gives me flashes of her memories and dreams. She's been with other type threes. She's helped them murder people. I don't care. I keep drinking her in, my tongue probing all the corners of her skull and sheathed wrinkles of her brain to get every last gooey drop. I can control my tongue, but just barely. It's hard to keep it from doing the one thing I dearly love, which is to drive it through her membrane deep between her slippery lobes. But that would be the end of her, the end of us. No more, all over, bye-bye. A little of what my body and soul craves is better than nothing at all, isn't it? My arm aches and I'm starting to feel lightheaded on top of the high. We're both running dry. I release her, 
spritz her brain with saline and carefully put the top of her head back into place. She's full of my blood, and already her scalp is sealing back together. We've done well. We spilled hardly anything on the tarp this time, but my face feels sticky and I've probably even gotten her in my hair. She daintily wipes my blood from the corners of her mouth and smiles at me. Her skin is pink and practically glowing, and her boniness seems chic rather than diseased. Want to go to that Italian place after we get cleaned up? Sure. I'm probably glowing, too. My stomach feels strong enough for pepperoncinis. I head to the bathroom to wash my face, but when I push open the door, I find myself in Dr. Shapiro's office. She's staring down at an MRI scan of somebody's chest. The monochrome bones look strange, distorted. There's definitely a mass behind your ribs and spine. It's growing fast, but I can't definitely say it's cancer. I'm dizzy with terror. How did I get here? What mass? How long have I had a mass? What should we do? I stammer. She looks up at me with eyes as solidly black as Betty's. I think we should wait and see. I back away, turn, push through her office door, and I'm back in a rented room, but not the downtown dive with the dusty chandelier. It's a suburban motel someplace. Have I been here before? The green tarp on the king-sized bed is covered in blood and bits of skull. There's a body wrapped in black trash bags, stuffed between the bed and the writing desk. Did I do that? What have I done? Oh, God, please make this stop. I have to lean against the wall to keep myself from tumbling backward. Betty comes out of the bathroom dressed in a spattered silk negligee. I think it used to be white. There's gore in her wig. Her eyes go wide. I told you not to come here. She grabs me by my arm, surprising me with her strength. In the distance, I can hear sirens. They'll be here any minute. Get away from here, fast as you can. She presses a set of rental car keys into my palm, hauls me to the door and pushes me out into the hallway, and I'm stepping into the elevator at work. Handsome blonde Devin is in there. A look of surprised fear crosses his face, and I know the very sight of me repels him. His hand goes to his jeans pocket. I see the outline of something that's probably a canister of pepper spray. It's too small to be a taser. But then he pauses, smiles at me. Hey, you going up to that training class? I nod mechanically and try to say, sure, but my lungs spasm and suddenly I'm doubled over, coughing into my hands. When did simply breathing start hurting this much? You okay? Devin asks. I try to nod, but there's bright blood on my palms. A long-forgotten Bible verse surfaces in the swamp of my memory. Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. I look up and see my reflection in the chromed elevator walls. My face is gaunt, but my body is grotesquely swollen. I've turned into some kind of hunchback. How long have I had the mass? Instead of the pepper spray, Devins pulled his cell phone out. I can smell his mind. He's torn between wanting to run away and wanting to help. Should I call someone? Should I call 911? The elevator is filled with the scent of him. Despite my pain and sickness, the want returns with a vengeance. Adrenaline rises along with my blood pressure. My tongue is twitching and something in my back, too. I can feel it tearing my ribs away from my spine. It hurts more than I can remember anything ever hurting. Maybe childbirth would be like this. Betty, I need Betty. How long has it been since I've seen her? Oh, God. Call 911, I try to say, but I can't take a breath, can't speak around the tongue writhing backward down my throat. What can I do? Devin touches my shoulder, and the feel of his hand against my bony flesh is far too much for me to bear.
I rise up under him, grab him by the sides of his head, kissing him. My tongue goes straight down his throat, choking him. He hits me, trying to shake me off, but as strong as he is, my want is stronger. When he's unconscious, I let him fall and hit the emergency stop button. The want has me wrapped tightly in its ardor, burning away all my human qualms. The alarm is an annoyance, and I know I don't have as much time as I want. Still, as I lift his left eyelid, I take a moment to admire his perfect blue bonnet iris. And then I plunge my tongue into his eye. The ball squirts off to the side as my organ drills deeper, the tiny mouths rasping through the thin socket bone into his sweet frontal lobe. After the first wash of cerebral fluid, I'm into the creamy white meat of him. And, oh God, this is more beautiful than I imagined. I'm devouring his will, devouring his memories, living him through and through. His first taste of wine, his first taste of a woman, the first time he stood on stage. He's at the prime of his life, and oh, it's been a wonderful life, and I am memorizing every second of it as I swallow down the contents of his lovely skull. When he's empty, I rise from his shell and feel my new wings break free from the cage of my back. As I spread them wide in the elevator, I realize I can hear the old gods whispering to me from their thrones in the dark spaces between the stars. I smile at myself in the distorted chrome walls. Everything is clear to me now. I have been chosen. I have a purpose. Through the virus, the old gods tested me and deemed me worthy of this holiest of duties. There are others like me. I can hear them gathering in the caves outside the city. Some died, yes, like the ragged man. But my becoming is almost complete. Nothing as simple as a bullet will stop me then. The earth is ripe. Human civilization at its peak. I and the other archivists will preserve the memories of the best and brightest as we devour them. We will use the blood of this world to write dark, beautiful poetry across the walls of the universe. For the first time in my life, I don't need faith. I know what I am supposed to do in every atom and every cell of my body. I will record thousands of souls before my masters allow me to join them in the star shadows, and I will love every moment of my mission. I can hear the SWAT team rush into the foyer three stories below, angry ants. I can hear Betty and the others calling to me from the hollow hills. Smiling, I open the hatch in the top of the elevator and prepare to fly. Thank you for that, Lucy. Lucy Snyder has a B.S. in biology and an M.A. in journalism and is a graduate of the 1995 Clarion Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Workshop. She has worked as a computer system specialist, a science writer, biology tutor, researcher, software reviewer, radio news editor, and bassoon instructor. In her past life as an editor, she published Dark Planet and selected poetry and software reviews for HMS Beagle. She currently produces a column for Horror World on science and technology for writers and coordinates the writing workshops at the annual Context Conference. 
you may look in on her life and work at her website, the which we'll post on the Tales to Terrify webpage. Magdala Amygdala was read for us tonight by Ms. Nicole Doolin. Nicole has become a regular... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here at Tales. In show 67, she did a beautiful rendition of Algernon Blackwood's The Woman's Ghost Story. In show number 57, Nicole read Chris Mallory's I Know What They Are to great effect. Nicole is a producer, writer, voice actor, and narrator whom I first encountered on LibriVox. She writes fiction, poetry, and scripts. Some of her work has been published and performed she is also an actor who has done voiceover work in a variety of media and has produced her own collection of classic narrations that are available on her website, NicoleDoolin.com. There you will find additional terrifying and not-so-terrifying tales by the likes of Edgar Allan Poe, Henry James, Jane Austen, Oscar Wilde, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and more. Again, that will be on the Tales to Terrify homepage. Thank you again, Nicole. Our second and final Stoker-nominated tale of the evening is Righteous by Mr. Weston Oakes. I emphasize Mr. Oakes because until 2004, Wes was a career military man, an intelligence officer with the U.S. Army. Way back in show number 13 here at Tales to Terrify, we heard his story, the Blue Healer, and show 44 featured his Big Rock Candy Mountain, which story was also published in Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. So, if tonight's tale touches your fancy, or it just plain creeps you out to good effect, well, you know what to do. Buy the book. Of course, Wes has a lot of his work out and about, and you can find that on Amazon. Well, you know. I'll tell you more about Mr. Oakes after we hear his Stoker-nominated Righteous. 
Hold on. They say he never felt a thing. They say when the bomb blew and his lower body evaporated, he died at that moment. But in my dreams, he lives for a few more seconds. I see him know that he's about to die. I feel his fear. Then I feel his pain. And it is like my own legs being ripped from me, ripped by the strong arms of a vengeful God, too hungry and eager to put us in our place, to understand the simple truth that we're merely humans and have been seeking an eternity for just a little fucking direction. I sit behind the wheel of my Buick sedan. I've always owned Buicks. My first one was a hand-me-down from my dad, who'd also always owned them. I was going to hand one down to Brandon when he got back from his deployment. When he was little, he called it a Buick. He just started to read, and that's the way he sounded out the letters. Daddy, let's go to the store in the Buick. Can we take a ride in the Buick? Let's go in the Buick. It was always about the Buick. I held back, telling him the right way to say it. I loved it when he called it that, the Buick. But then, some asshat kid in fourth grade made fun of him, and Brandon never called it a Buick again, except in my mind. You're talking to yourself again, dude, the dog says, sitting in the passenger seat, his baleful eyes on me. The no-account mud is probably right. That he's the only one who can hear me makes it okay. I found him on a back Kentucky road. I passed him, then backed up, and opened the passenger door. He looked at me as if he knew the entirety of my plan and shook his head. Asshat, he'd said in the voice of my long-dead wife, you're going to need me. Then he jumped into the seat, and we've been a team ever since. Yeah, I used to love this car. I used to wash it every weekend. Now the floor holds the evidence of my vigils, bright yellow, red, and orange cups, bags, napkins, and the residue of too many late-night trips to fast-food restaurants. From the outside, it's hard to tell what color it is. The car hasn't been washed since the funeral. A thousand miles of road and a sideswipe of a guardrail have changed its complexion. Really, nothing has been done to it except the driving. Always the driving. And like so many nights before, I stare daggers at the place the man sits. Tonight it's a booth by a window, he and his wife and young sons eating pizza and laughing like he isn't a serial murderer by proxy. We're almost ready to execute this one, too. It was a war, dude. I keep telling you, it was a war. I can never get over how much the dog sounds like Susan. Part of me wonders if her ghost inhabits the mutt, but another part of me wonders if it isn't God having a good laugh. It wasn't the war anyone signed up for, I say. What kind of war does these things to our kids? The dog looks at me and shakes his head. I know. I'm an asshat. Once upon a time, I was Private Dude Johnson in 1968, during the Tet Offensive. That was a real war. Men fought and died for a cause. It was hell. I still wake up in cold sweats over the things I did, the things I'd seen done, the things almost done to me. The closest I came to the old Reaper wasn't skulking through the jungle in the dark. It was in a disco in Saigon. A man came in wearing a bomb, called us all Yankee motherfuckers, and blew himself up. If it wasn't for all the juicy girls between me and him, I would have been hurt. As it was, I was blown back and covered in pieces of what used to be some of the finest Saigon hookers. He knew the price of glory, the dog says. Nah, John Ford and James Cagney. You see that one, Mutt? 
I'm a dog. I don't see movies. I read it in your mind, dude. An old 1956 movie about World War I, What Price Glory was about a soldier's first duty, which was to his men. I feel a lump blossom in my chest. Brandon was a good sergeant, they said. It wasn't his fault they were blown up, they said. How are they supposed to know, Mutt asks rhetorically. They couldn't have known, not in a million years. Why is that movie in the front of your mind? Why not some of the others? Why not John Wayne or Tom Hanks? Hanks? That guy's a comedian. But he was in World War II, the mutt says, narrowing his eyes. When he wasn't saving Private Ryan. Yeah, that was a good one. And Band of Brothers, too. That was a series about an American army unit in Europe during World War II. That was as good as it got when talking about friendships and the nature of leadership. They were expendable? I nod. Fucking John Wayne movie about P.T. Boats. That was one of his better ones. But there's one thing about every John Wayne war movie that I hate. What's that, dude? Asshat never dies in a war movie. Asshat, Mud agrees. You can say that again. Asshat. They say a psychopath is completely free of cultural restraints. They say that such a person is not held back by any desires of guilt or shame. How other people think and feel are of no consequence. They call this sort of person crazy. I call this sort of person a father. I watch as the man who recruited my son into the army pays his bill, gets up, and exits the restaurant with his family. His wife and two boys are about the age that my boy first called my car a bwick, and they get into a silver Ford Explorer. He watches them go until they are out of sight, then gets into a beat-up Trans Am. I follow from a distance, trying to keep at least two or three cars between us. I vary it, careful that he doesn't notice me always in the same place. Of course I could lose him and it wouldn't make a difference. He was going home. I'd followed him a dozen times. Then he'd call his sons and verbally tuck them into bed. Then after a good night's sleep, he'd go to work the next morning and kill another man's boy by proxy. The thing of it all, it never seemed to bother him. Once I made sure he was going to stay in for the night, I'd drive us to the local Walmart parking lot, one of the few places outside of a campground that allows overnight sleeping. There's already six RVs parked, the lights on and dishes, pointed toward the appropriate satellite. I walk mud, then we open a bag of food I got on the way. Inside is an immense burrito. I tear it in two. I eat half and mud eats the other. Soon, both of us are asleep. I wake occasionally to mud passing gas. Dogs were never meant to process beans. Five sentences changed my life forever. Yes, I'll marry you, is how Susan changed my life. It's a boy, is how a wide-hipped, chippy-eyed nurse changed my life. Metastasized means that your wife's breast cancer has spread to her lymph nodes, is how the medical community gave up trying to save Susan and changed my life. On behalf of a grateful nation, I present this flag as a token of our appreciation for the faithful and selfless service of your loved one for this country, is how a straight-faced Uncle Sam socked me in the heart. Then one night, I was three sheets to the wind with a bottle of Cuddy Sark and Pulp Fiction blasting on television. When Samuel L. Jackson screamed the words from Ezekiel twenty-five seventeen, I sat up and was beset by a moment of clarity as he talked about the path of the righteous man. Then he said the words that started me on this path of the righteous man. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly 
his brother's keeper, and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. And always, as Mud is eager to point out my errors, those are seven sentences, dude. But they are seven good sentences I offer. Mud thinks for a moment, then nods. They are, especially for an asshat. I'm up early the next morning. Mutt pees in some weeds. I pee in a can, then walk over and empty it in the weeds. A crotchety old bag in a quarter of a million dollar RV gives me the stink eye. She looks like Susan's mother. They're about the same age and appear to have the same affection for me. I give her the one-fingered salute, which she returns with an unmistakable glee. For a moment, I wish I had more than five bombs left. When her ass blows through her eye sockets, she might for once realize what an asshat she was being for trying to judge me because I own an old Bwick and not an RV. We get back in the car and head to the local Mickey D's for Egg McMuffins. Sitting in the parking lot and eating, I have an episode, strangling the breath from me as it shows explosion after explosion after explosion. The pain is my pain as I relive what probably happened to my son and his squad. When I am finally released from its merciless grip, a half-eaten McMuffin lays in my lap, puke and bile soaking it. When the smell hits me, I puke all over again. But I am empty. So instead, it is like a cat trying to hack a hairball, my back arching as I dry heave and hack until I see stars and the miserable galaxy they live within. The car rocks with my throes, chasing passers-by away as they watch what could only be the alien from John Carpenter's The Thing escaping from my body. When the episode finally leaves me, gasping and exhausted, I look over at Mutt. He regards me with his usual aplomb. I swear to God he shakes his head and then calls me asshat. I shove my puke and food onto the floor and sit back in my seat. My head swims as I grip the wheel with clenched fists. They called it secondary post-traumatic stress disorder. They say that some people are affected by a horrific incident, even if they were never there. Personally, I think it's a load of horse piss. But after the funeral, when it began to kick in, my doctor had to figure out what to call the thing that owned me. Forgetfulness is a big part of it. The power in my house was shut off three times, not because I didn't have the money to pay it, but because I simply didn't remember to pay the bill. I had a warrant for eight months for not paying a speeding ticket. It wasn't that I didn't want to pay, I just couldn't remember. My rent payment was laid every month for a year before I let the thing go completely. It was almost like I convinced myself it would work itself out instead of being proactive and doing it when I was supposed to. Then, there are the nightmares. Technicolor, terrible, fucking nightmares from hell. I'd gotten to where I took antihistamines every night just to knock myself out. There are also the panic attacks. If surprised, I throw fits. So fucking embarrassing. I couldn't control it. It was as if someone else was in my body, in my head and drunk driving all the way through a funhouse. My doctor gives me meds to control it, but they turn me into a fucking zombie. I even caught myself drooling once. When that happened is when I decided I'd rather be crazy than a zombie. And eight days after that, I found the path of the righteous man. All of my symptoms are gone now. Well, mostly. All except the occasional attack. And of course, the dog talks to me now, too. That can't be right. After cleaning in a truck stop washroom, I pull the car into a church parking lot. 
Churches are the best cover. No one ever thinks that bad things are capable of happening there. So even though there are several people preparing for service, they ignore me as I check the remaining bombs. Five of the original ten are left, one to represent my son and each member of his squad, each destined for the recruiter who enticed a fine young American boy onto a path that would ultimately end up with him scattered around the side of the road in the Iraq city of Haditha. The bombs look identical. I touch them gently with my fingertips, but they aren't identical. I'd thought to make them all the same, but it was Mutt who intervened. So in a fever dream of construction, I created the bombs so that some of them deliver deadly ball bearings, and some deliver a much smaller charge, along with a hail of multicolored confetti. I don't know which ones are which. I don't know how many of each one I constructed. That Saturday night in my garage was part blur, part blank. All I know is that I'd so far conspired for five to detonate, and each one did. What they delivered, I don't know. I don't want to know. Except for this one. Staff Sergeant Reyes was the one who recruited my son. It was his fault my son was dead, and he had to pay the most. I close the trunk, satisfied that the bombs are ready. Then I drive to a car wash. I spend seventeen quarters cleaning outside of the car and the puke from the seat and the floor. All the while, Mutt sits near the trash can, watching my every move. I occasionally stop and watch the dog, watching me. Finally, when I am about done, I feel the need to confront it. I walk over, kneel down, and stare into the dog's eyes. I'd never petted it. It had never occurred to me to do so. Even though it appears to be a dog, it is more than that. I can't be certain, but I feel there is a higher power working through it. Susan, I say, seeking the soul of my dead wife in the deep brown eyes of the animal. Susan? The dog pants, its tongue lolling out the side of its mouth. Susan? Is that you? Come on, Susan. Answer me. Is that your dog, sir? Comes a voice from behind me. A policeman stands with a hand resting casually on his holstered and snapped pistol. The other hand points at Mutt. Uh, yes, officer. It's not registered. Then seeing my perplexed expression, he adds, No tags. He glances back at the car. Yours? I stand slowly, glancing from his pistol to the trunk where the bombs rest snug in a suitcase beside the unearthed remains of my son. I wonder which would freak him out more, the bones or the bombs. A giggle escapes. Something funny? He asks, standing a little straighter. No, no, sir. What's the problem? Your dog has to be registered. We can't have animals running around who haven't been cleared by a vet. Mud is clean. She's healthy. I'm sure she is. License and registration, please, he says, pulling out a ticket book. My eyes narrow. But I'm not driving. Why do you need to see those? License and registration, sir. He gives me a cold look over the top of his ticket book. Is there a problem? I lick my lips. Part of me thinks I can take him. I glance at Mutt, who is almost imperceptibly shaking its head. I take the advice and pull my wallet free from my back pocket. I fumble free my license and paper registration and hand it to him. He writes for a moment, then pauses. This address correct? Meaning my California address. Yes, I lie, not bothering to tell him that my real address is the front seat of the Buick. He finishes writing, then hands me the ticket along with my license and registration. I realize you can just leave town, but if I see that dog again without registration, I'll have to fine you. This is just a warning. 
Thanks, officer, for being a busybody asshole and wasting time with me when you could be out chasing bad guys. He frowns and nods, then returns to his bicycle, the reason I hadn't heard him approach. As he pedals away, Mutt comes over and sits beside me. He heard what you didn't say, the dog says. No, he didn't. That was my inside voice. Asshat. No, it wasn't. It was your outside voice. I watch as the policeman looks back and watches me. Then he has gone down the street and around a corner. I pass the night in the same Walmart parking lot, nervous that the policeman will find me. I'm not worried about getting caught, but I am worried about finishing. I have five more bombs and they have to be delivered just so. But my earlier conversation with Mutt had sparked something else, something that wasn't making me happy. My targets had recruited my son physically. They'd given him tests, made him sign the appropriate paperwork, and delivered him to basic training, but they hadn't recruited his mind. In the long, dark hours of waiting, I was beginning to realize that he'd been recruited a long time before he'd ever met his first recruiter. Part of it was my fault. I'd like telling him stories, some my own, some made up of my bravery and courage in Vietnam. What father wouldn't have? To be idolized by a child is second to nothing. But then there were the movies. Memorial Day weekend, we'd watch the movie marathons on cable about the exploits of soldiers, sailors, and marines in every war America had ever been in. From ironclads to tanks to jets, from Tom Cruise to Nicolas Cage to Lee Marvin, we watched them all and inculcated the idea of patriotism and valor. Most of it washed off me. I'd been there. I'd done that. I'd got the combat t-shirt of wet nightmares and dry heaves. But what of my son? How much of an indoctrination had it been? It was a recruitment of the mind, body, and soul, and I had been an accomplice after all. Every Hollywood director, producer, actor, key grip, and best boy was at fault. Each and every one who had been part of making a movie about selfless service and heroism might as well have each been a part of building the roadside bomb that had obliterated my progeny. I am beginning to suspect that I'll need a lot more bombs. Five the next morning, I am ready. The bomb is wrapped inside a pizza box I placed beside the running track, where Staff Sergeant Reyes runs every morning. It is his one constant, and the perfect place for me to strike down upon him with great vengeance and furious anger. I am there when he pulls into the parking lot in his Trans Am. He gets out wearing shorts, a t-shirt that reads Army of One, and sleek orange running shoes. As he stretches, I notice the high school track team beginning to show up on the other side of the track. They are an obstacle I am hoping not to have to contend with. Normally, Staff Sergeant Reyes is done before they even start, but they seem to be early today. I watch them, wondering if they might get in the way, but I've already made my decision. I won't be stopped. It's an interesting conundrum. I watch them as they form up and begin their stretching. It isn't long before I come to the conclusion that it isn't my problem. Hey, asshat, the dog says. Don't look now, but the popo's here. I turn at Mutt's urban slang in time to watch the policeman on the bicycle riding towards me. With a sense of foreboding, I realize it's the same police officer. I finger the telephone in my pocket. All I have to do is hit speed dial number six, and it'll call the other phone attached to the device. The detonator is attached to the ringer. One call, one ring, and then boom. Killed by the same method as my son. Morning, the cop says, slowing to a stop until he was resting his arms over the tops of his handlebars. I stared at him a moment, then hastily returned his greeting, 
Then I half turn towards the track and try to act like I'm interested in something there. You going to get that dog registered? What? Yeah. When they open, I'll be there. Staff Sergeant Reyes finishes stretching and begins his run. He starts with a swift pace. He normally runs eight laps, which is two miles. Based on his earlier times, he'd be done in about 15 minutes. I glance at the kids and see they're about ready to start. Butterflies dance through my chest. One of them yours? Grandson? I shake my head. Then why are you here? Excuse me? He raises his voice as he says, I asked you, why are you here? Uh, come on, asshat. Tell him why you're here. Staff Sergeant Reyes runs past the pizza box on the far side of the track. He doesn't even give it a second glance, just like he never gave signing my son into the Army a second thought. My index finger hovers over the call button. The policeman gets off his bike. The crunch of gravel as his kickstand bites the ground. His footsteps. Then I feel his presence over my shoulder. My son died in Iraq, I say, the words coming from some strange accord between my brain and my thrumming heart. This stops him. Sometimes I just like to watch the kids run. Yeah, that sounds right. My son was a runner in high school, ran the 800 meters. He used to be fast. Let me see your hands, he says. Staff Sergeant Reyes completes one lap. The kids join him and are soon running in a gaggle with him, orbiting the center from the inside lane. Turn around, comes the order. I turn. My throat is so constricted I can barely breathe. Hands, he says, as his thumb unclips the snap on his holster. I remove both my hands from the jacket. The phone is inside my right hand. My left is empty. Hold them up. As soon as I comply, he grabs me by the shoulder, spins me around, and frisks me. He finds nothing, then turns me back. You can put your hands down. He examines me. There's something off about you. Haven't been the same since my son died. His face remains hard for a moment, then softens. That's probably it. He snaps his pistol back in the holster. Where'd he die? Iraq. Haditha. The policeman shakes his head. Tough luck. How'd it happen? Friendly fire, I say, staring at Staff Sergeant Reyes as he separates himself from the others and pours on speed. He whips past the bomb. Doubly tough. Were they punished? It's an ongoing process, I say. Just tough, he says, as he turns back towards his bike. I can't help but giggle. He turns back to me and gives me a baleful stare. He speaks low into his mobile radio, his eyes never leaving me. Asshat's going to arrest you, Mutt says. Asshat cop thinks you're a crazy asshat pedophile and is going to call backup. I can feel it coming. In a desperate ploy, I point towards the pizza box. Look at that! The policeman follows the direction of my finger to where the pizza box lays alongside the track. There! See it? What about it? He asks, suspiciously. Asshat thinks you're crazy, Mutt says. Asshat is right, I think. Crazy as a fucking loon. I can't help but giggle. I've come to adore the term asshat. That was your outside voice, Mutt points out, like I'm the king of all asshats. What do you say? The policeman says. Everything goes into slow motion. He looks to the pizza box and the kids running past. Then he looks at me. I can see his mind spinning furiously but unable to fathom what is about to take place. He takes a step towards me. I step back and shake my head. Sorry, like you said, I'm a little off. He stops. 
I watch as he seems to come to terms with the idea that I may be insane. I mouth the word, boom. Staff Sergeant Reyes is approaching my bomb. I press the speed dial. I wait three seconds, wondering whether it will be confetti or skin raining down on the gaggle of boys twenty meters behind him. Kawoomp! The shock wave knocks us back. I turn in time to see the red-tinged cloud rise into the air, like Ezekiel's own mushroom cloud of righteous destruction. The boys struggle to their feet. Most of them are holding their ears and screaming. The open-jawed policeman stares blankly at me. I shrug. Then he takes off running towards the carnage, shouting for help into his mobile radio. Asshat, I say or don't say to his back. Should have arrested me when you had the chance. It's nothing for me and Mutt to get in my car and head down the road. I'm aware that sooner or later I'm going to have to get rid of the car. I'll miss it, but maybe I can get another Bwick, one in which the ghost of my son can ride, as me and his mother, whom I'm certain is locked within the fluffy skin of a dog, trundle on down the road of righteous redemption to deliver four more bombs. Daddy! Come out and play war with us, he once said when he was seven or eight years old. I remember asking who he was going to be, the good guys or the bad guys. He gave me one of those looks like Mutt would give, but without calling me an asshat. We're always the good guys, Dad. Come on, Dad. And I remember that exact moment, standing on the porch with a glass of iced tea sweating in my hand, wondering about all the children of bad men in the world, if when they played war if they played at being bad guys. Somehow, I doubted it. At the end of the day, everyone's a good guy. It's just that some can be even more good, especially if they're righteous. And I'm about as righteous an asshat as there ever was. Look out, world. Here I come. Thank you for the use of that, Wes. Weston spells his name O-C-H-S-E. It is pronounced like the trees, oaks. And together with his first name, he says he sounds like a stately trailer park, Weston Oaks. Weston Oaks lives in the Arizona desert within rock-throwing distance of Mexico, and for fun, he races tarantula wasps and watches the black helicopters dance along the horizon. Wes is the author of nine novels, most recently Seal Team 666, which the New York Post called Required Reading. His first novel, Scarecrow Gods, won the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in First Novel and his short fiction has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize and many others. His work has appeared in comic books and magazines such as Cemetery Dance and Soldier of Fortune, and has been lauded by Joe R. Lansdale, Peter Straub, Kevin J. Anderson, John Skip, Brian Keene, Jonathan Mabry, and many, many more including the New York Times, the New York Post, the Washington Post, Denver Post, the Financial Times of London, and the UK Examiner. 
You can keep up with him on his blog, the URL of which is on the Tales homepage. Righteous was read tonight by Jonathan Danz. I believe this is Jonathan's third appearance here in the Nook. Yes, he was here for shows number 12 and 62. In addition to being a narrator par excellence, Jonathan is a writer who, as he says, lives on the edge. The edge of the New River Gorge, that is, in West Virginia, with his wife, his daughter, and a menagerie of domestic pets. When not narrating, Jonathan can be found writing, as he says, speculative fiction that he would like to read. And he also says that he wants to use the fantasy setting to tell stories about people. Swords, magic, monsters, et al. are cool, he says, but people, ah, people are interesting. If the mood strikes you, visit his blog, Words and Coffee, at jonathandanz.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-D-A-N-Z.com. And, children of the night, that will be that for the evening and for the year in Stoker-nominated short fiction. Gather your gear and ready yourself for the outward slog. So, which would be your choice for this year's Stoker in short fiction? Do I have favorites? Oh, <laughs> yes. I am a voting member of HWA, and I've made my selections for this go-round. I will say, though, we've had a truly excellent gathering of tales from which we can make what is and what was a very hard choice. In all events, as we say, it's an honor just to be nominated, but it's really great to win. So, best wishes to all of you, Joe, Bruce, John, Lucy, and Wes, and thank you again for letting us record and cast your stories here at Tales to Terrify. Have a ball in New Orleans, and I wish I could be with you. Next week? Well, next week, we'll have something utterly different. Something wondrous and hopefully terrifyingly satisfactory. So, now, wrap up and make your way home, thinking all the while, en route, of course, to keep your eyes out for such bwicks as may be on the road, and you never know who's behind the wheel in the night, and watch out, of course, for dark wings against the sky. But, of course, you'll get home. I know you will. And when you do, as suggested last week, I hope that you'll go to your computing machines, fire up your enthusiasm for doing good works in the world, and head to, say, the American Red Cross, and contribute what you can. I speak of the efforts to provide for the people in Oklahoma, now homeless and in need of food and other such aid as can be supplied. The tornado was more than a week ago, but more is still flattened, and a week is a long time to be homeless and hungry. Yes? Yes. Think about it. Then, go to bed with a shining conscience, close your eyes, and find what will doubtless be very pleasant dreams. Hmm...
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.